0: Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Waller. I have the joy of serving as the pastor of Live Church along with my wife, Laura. I'm so grateful that the team of so many beautiful people from our church were able to read the Easter story in so many different languages. The thing about the Easter story and the story of Jesus is that it really does encompass the story of humanity, the story of the whole world. There is virtually no part of the world that has not been impacted by the story of Jesus. The famous author uh, H.G. Wells said this about Jesus, and it's particularly interesting. He said, I am an historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess that as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the work of those that followed him are either the most important events in human history, or they are the most corrupt human conspiracy ever created. However, Christians do not just observe the undeniable impact of Jesus on history and conclude that he was an interesting person. No, you see, for Christians, everything in not just our lives, but in all of creation and in all of history is centered and oriented around the person of Jesus. The early Christians... And every Christian since then believed that Jesus was not just a man, but that he existed from the very beginning of time, and that because of his life, we can all have relationship with each other and with God. John, one of Jesus' friends, uh, remarked in his letter, 1 John chapter 1, he said, What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen, and what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning concerning the word of life that is Jesus, that life, Jesus' life was revealed and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you that the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us." Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, John wrote to say that he met, knew, and walked with Jesus. And he saw that because of Jesus, there was an invitation to relationship with God. Indeed, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Christians see something bigger, deeper, and wider than just a mere story that has implications for all people everywhere. The question is, is it true? Did Jesus really live? Did he really die? Did he really rise from the dead? And perhaps more importantly, what does it mean if the answer is yes to those questions? Tonight, we're going to start by tackling the question of Jesus' life and death. On Sunday, we're going to look at Jesus' resurrection. Next Thursday evening at 7.30, we're going to look at the story of Jesus' first followers and how they understood Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And finally, next Sunday, we are going to explore the story of the Bible from start to finish and how it points to Jesus. So the question is, for tonight, did Jesus really live? Did Jesus really die? Well, to the question of did Jesus really live, there are no serious historians of note or credibility and no ancient sources whatsoever that question the existence of Jesus that are accepted. In short, Jesus' life is one of the best attested facts of antiquity that we could have. Jesus' existence is virtually universally understood to be legitimate by historians. And not just his mere existence that there was a man named Jesus, but the particular details of his life are generally accepted by both those who believe in Jesus' uh, resurrection and the purpose of his life, and those who do not. Now, the most prominent evidence for Jesus' life are, of course, the biographies of his life that Christians call the Gospels. These biographies were all written down in the years immediately following Jesus' life and were recorded firsthand by those who personally walked with Jesus As John, uh, one of Jesus' friends, remarked above, he writes about the Jesus that he heard and saw and touched. He knew him directly. There's another account of Jesus' life in the Bible, the biography of Luke's account of Jesus. And Luke starts out by saying in Luke chapter 1 that it seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus so that you may be, so that you may have certainty about the things from which you've been instructed. In other words, the gospel account of Luke was Luke's investigative journalism about the story of Jesus. The biographies of Jesus in the Bible are very, very important. And on Sunday, we're going to examine in greater detail when we look at the resurrection, why they are so trustworthy. But the evidence for Jesus' life is not restricted to content written by Christians. There is ample evidence for his life from non-Christians and sometimes even explicitly anti-Christian sources. The Jewish historian Josephus for example, it confirms some very important details about Jesus' life shortly after Jesus lived. He, he, Josephus confirms that Jesus had a brother named James, also talked about in the Bible. And he confirms that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And there are many more historical examples. When we look at the historical records and examine them carefully, it's really quite crystal clear. The ancient world, in the several hundred years after Jesus' life, are all unified in their agreement that they were talking about a real person that lived in Nazareth. Now, it's quite clear that Jesus lived, and to be honest, it would take a Herculean effort in mental gymnastics to disregard the records of historical inquiry and conclude that Jesus didn't live. It's, it's almost impossible. However, the mere fact that Jesus lived is not that important. No. It is his death and resurrection that set Jesus apart as unique in history. Now, simply put, we can be we can be pretty confident that Jesus lived, but we can be equally confident that he died. So, the question of did Jesus die? The answer we can be confident in is yes, and here's why. The first point here is that the Gospels paint a really clear and unified picture that Jesus was executed under crucifixion by the Romans. The four Gospel accounts and all the other New Testament writings paint a crystal clear picture of the fact that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We need to understand that the Bible was not a random document. It is a historical document that was written by the people that were there. And when we, on Sunday, when we dive deeper on this, and we apply the uh, rigors of historical inquiry to those documents, we realize that, yes, in fact, those accounts are trustworthy. Outside of the Bible, however, there are some important references to Jesus' death. Tacitus, a uh, Roman historian, confirms the account in the Gospels that Pilate oversaw the execution of Jesus and the sudden rise of the church as a result. Listen to how, and it's explicitly anti-Christian, which is why this is so interesting. It says this, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Jesus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, death, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out, not only in Judea, the very source of evil, but even in Rome. Of course, he's referring to the resurrection there. As we already discussed, Josephus, a first century Jewish uh, historian, but not a Christian, similarly confirmed Jesus' execution by Pilate. The Babylonian Talmud, a collection of rabbinical writings, confirm two aspects of Jesus' death. First, that he was uh, hung or crucified, and secondly, that he was executed, uh, as they say, for practicing sorcery and enticing Israel to apostasy, which fits very well with the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. So just very briefly, without much, too much digging, we have found three outside of the Bible references, not just to the fact that Jesus died, but to who killed him and how. There is, in short, very strong evidence to believe that Jesus was crucified. But we can ask, well, maybe he didn't actually die, right? Maybe his resurrection, which we're going to look at on Sunday, wasn't really a resurrection, but a resuscitation. If Jesus didn't really die, then he didn't really rise from the dead. Now, this is an important question because it is the traditional view in the Islamic teachings of Jesus. Historically, Muslims, for example, have taught that while Jesus was real, they generally teach that he did not really die and therefore wasn't really resurrected. It is a really important question. Did Jesus really die on the cross? To answer that question, we need to dive a little bit deeper on crucifixion to understand what it is. Crucifixion was actually quite a common method of execution, but it was brutal. It was a common but absolutely brutal means of execution. And it was designed to do two things. Exact the greatest degree of suffering on the person being executed, and make as big of an example out of them in the process. The Romans reserved it for the very worst of criminals, rebels, murderers, and the like. In the years before and after Jesus, the Romans repeatedly used crucifixion and perfected it to make examples out of the enemies of Rome so as to dissuade further rebellions. To say that they had mastered the technique is an understatement. In one historical account, the Romans crucified so many people attached to a particular rebellion that they ran out of lumber. This is important because it means that crucifixion was a technique that they mastered. The Romans knew how to execute people via crucifixion, they knew how to use it to kill, and they ensured that those they crucified actually died. But we can dive deeper here. To better understand death by crucifixion, listen to what a physician has written about it. He said this, and this is not for the squeamish, someone nailed to a crucifix with their arms stretched out to either side could expect to live for no more than 24 hours. Seven-inch nails would be driven through the wrists so that the bones would support the body's weight. The nail driven through would sever the median nerve, which was not only causing immense pain, but would have paralyzed the victim's hands. The feet were nailed in the upright part of the crucifix so that the knees were bent around 45 degrees. To speed death, the executioners would often break the legs of their victims so as to give them no chance of using their thigh muscles as support. It was probably unnecessary as their strength would not have lasted more than a few minutes, even if... They were unharmed. Once the legs gave out, the weight would be transferred to the arms, gradually dragging the shoulders from their sockets. The elbows and wrists would follow a few minutes later. By now, the arms would be six or seven inches longer than usual. The victim would have no choice but to bear his weight on his chest, and he would immediately have trouble breathing caused by the ribcage to lift up and force him into an almost perpetual state of inhalation. Suffocation would usually follow, but the relief of death could arrive in other ways. The resultant lack of oxygen in the blood would cause damage to the tissues and blood vessels, allowing fluid to diffuse out of the blood into the tissues, including the lungs and the sac around the heart. In short, crucifixion, was brutally effective. There's a particularly important detail recorded in the Gospel of Jesus that Jesus, or the Gospel of John, that Jesus was pierced with a spear in his side after he died. It says that in John nineteen thirty four that one of the soldiers pierced his side and at once blood and water came out. The blood and the water was a result of the blood vessels and the water building up in the area around his heart and piercing it, re- released that water. A sure sign of Jesus' death. Physiologically, it is a virtual certainty that Jesus died on the cross. Now, an astute person may note that in, if you've read those accounts of Jesus' death, you'll note that he died quite quickly on the cross. And they, some people would say, well, because he died so quickly, he couldn't have really died. But this is not quite accurate. You see, the first aspect here is that prior to Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus was beaten to within an inch of his own death. When he arrived at the cross, he was so weakened that he could barely walk. There's little surprise that Jesus did not last long on the cross, given his ordeal prior to his arrival. The second aspect is that people will say, well, Jesus could have lasted much longer on the cross, but we know that Jesus was crucified via the most brutal method using nails instead of ropes. Yes, some people were crucified via ropes on the cross to prolong their suffering, but Jesus was crucified with nails, which typically resulted in a much more expedient death. However, there's a more important detail To explain Jesus' death. You see, regardless of if Jesus could have lived longer on the cross by hoisting himself up and and holding himself up on the cross and thereby prolonging his life, there's a vitally important detail of Jesus' death on the cross that is surely unique. Jesus chose to die. He did not need to fight to live on the the cross because his entire life to that point had been leading to his death on the cross. Just before Jesus died on the cross, he said this to his family. In Matthew 20, the Son of Man, referring to himself, will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day he'll be raised. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was there because he chose to be there and die on that cross. That's why in John 19, when it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The fact that Jesus gave up his life is important because it expedited his own death, but it's also crucially important because it has implications for what this all means. Jesus' death was not an accident. He chose to die. In the years before Jesus' life and death, there were many rebels, and even supposed messiahs like Jesus, that were executed by the Romans. But Jesus is unique in that the purpose of his life and the purpose that he understood for his life was to die. He came so that he could lay his life down. The suffering and pain that I described were all part of the plan. He knew exactly what lay before him. Jesus was not just executed because he was a He was not executed because he was a violent criminal. He wasn't violent, a war criminal, or a thief. No, Jesus was executed because, from the perspective of the Jewish leaders, he claimed to be God, and that was punishable by death. From the perspective of the Romans, he was executed on the charge of establishing his own kingdom, in short for inciting a rebellion. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't incite a violent rebellion. But he was coming to establish a new kingdom. Jesus did claim to be God. It's interesting when he said to Pilate, he said to Pilate just as he was being uh, tried, he said, you say that I am a king. In fact, for, the very, for that reason, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus was coming to set up a kingdom. But his kingdom was not like any kingdom that went before him. In Jesus' mind, he was part of establishing a new kingdom. And that kingdom started on the cross. The cross in Jesus' mind was not the place of his failure, but the culmination of his life's work. That's what he understood it to be. Jesus was ultimately executed because he chose to lay his life down. The question is, why? Why did Jesus live to die? I'm going to pass it to Alex, who's going to seek to answer that question in just a moment. And as we just prepare to answer that question, I'm going to invite you to reflect on if Jesus really lived, if Jesus really died. If Jesus willingly died, the question we need to ask is why?
1: Awesome. Well, hey everybody. Uh, My name is Alex and as Robin just said, I have the the joy of of helping us unpack this second really important question. If Jesus' death was intentional, if he willingly laid down his life, then why did he do so? What did he think that he was doing and what does the Bible say about the meaning of his death? And so in order to understand how His death might be considered good news, which it is. We need to understand what problem his death solved. And that problem is the problem of sin. The Bible is really clear that the message, the good news is that Jesus' death is so critical, so life changing, because it provided forgiveness for our sins. So, what is sin? And why is it a problem that would concern even the very heart of God? Well, we need to start at the beginning and and understand that we were actually made, we were created to know God personally, to know the creator of the universe personally, and to walk through this life with him. That was God's heart, his intention, his design at creation. Do you know that? Do you believe that he made you? with great intention and purpose. And the Bible says that he made us humanity to actually bear, to carry his image, to reflect who he is to the world around us. You and I were made to reflect God's character, his heart, his his goodness to all creation. So according to God's design, right from the beginning, to be fully human, to be a thriving human is to know him to worship him and to reflect glory back to him. Maybe you even sense that already. Sense that we were actually made for, we were meant for relationships just as God is relational. That we were meant to be creative, adventurous, purposeful, full of joy and compassion, all things reflecting the very heart of God. Now, in order to actually know God personally and to walk with him, In order to be truly human, we would, of course, need to submit ourselves to God's authority. We would need to allow him to be God. And this is where the Bible says the problem began. Because instead of allowing God to be God, we actually rejected his authority. The first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's exclusive position to define what is true and what is good. And instead, they took that power upon themselves. It was rejection of God. It was rebellion against the God who created us. And it continues to be the story of the human condition even today. That's what the Bible calls sin. Sin is is missing the mark. But more than missing the mark on a set of what might seem like arbitrary rules, our sin is ultimately a missing of the mark on who God has created us to be. It's a rejection of worship and instead placing our worship onto other things. Sin is a failure to take up this beautiful call of God to be fully human, fully alive. So if our lives were meant to be mirrors reflecting God's glory and goodness, sin has really distorted, damaged that image, but the image is still there. And so the Bible actually helps explain the the depth of of sin using four different paradigms. And and when we understand that, we can can see just how Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate solution for the forgiveness of that sin and how it paves the way for us to once again be fully human, fully alive. We'll see that it actually is the greatest news that we could ever hear. So what is sin according to the Bible? Number 1, firstly, it's a relational problem. It's a relational problem. You see, in rejecting God, we have we have fractured that relationship with him that we were originally created to experience. God is so fiercely personal. He's intimate and he longs for us to know him. He's present, he's involved. He wants to speak to us and he is a God who listens to our prayers. He wants to walk with us through this life. Sin has fractured relationship with God, leading us so often to wander through this life, separated from the one who truly and deeply loves us. Separated from the one whose presence brings tremendous comfort and peace and whose direction brings our lives purpose. Now, that's our condition. But Jesus, he did not reject relationship with the Father. Unlike us, Jesus actually lived his life here on earth in perfect harmony with the Father. But on the cross, in that moment of his death, he actually experienced for us, the devastating separation of that union with God. Listen to Matthew 27, 45 and 46. It was read earlier, but listen to it again. Matthew says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? that is my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus was the son who is actually in a perfect relationship with the father. Yet at the cross, he became like us, the rebellious sons and daughters. So that you and I, we might know relationship with God. That we might actually be brought back, reconciled to God. Adopted into his family once again. Because of Jesus, you can know the joy of worshiping God freely hearing from him, walking with him, praying confidently, having a life of purpose with him. Because of Jesus' death, we can know a life of intimacy with the creator of the universe, all because he experienced the pain of that separation on our behalf. It's truly good news. The Bible also says, secondly, that sin is a legal problem. It's a legal problem. You see, next to a holy and righteous God, we, imperfect humans, we are going to fall short again and again. We've actually broken God's commands. Therefore, we stand guilty before him. The Bible says that even our best efforts, our greatest attempts to be really moral, good people, those attempts fall short. And that our, our attempts at righteousness are just like filthy rags next to God's purity. And so what can follow, and maybe you've experienced this, maybe you're experiencing it right now, what can follow is a cloud of guilt and shame, a sense that somehow I am wrong. Now, oftentimes we can, we can bury that in just a rejection of the thought of God or morality altogether. At other times, though, we we cover it with a sense of duty to do good all the time or a striving for some sort of perfection. Either way, all of those can become cycles of pride where we just turn inwardly, deeper, turning to ourselves as the source of a solution. But our status remains. Before a holy and good God, we, we come up short, we are guilty. And here's the good news. Jesus has freed us from that cycle because he has changed our status before God for us. You see, it was at the cross in his death that Jesus actually served as our substitute. In John chapter one, Jesus is called the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a, it's a fascinating, beautiful image. You see, before Jesus came to earth in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, God's people would would sacrifice innocent animals before him as offerings. What what would happen is when when the innocent blood was shed, it would pay for or atone for their guilt before God. The problem, of course, is that that was only a temporary solution. An animal can't truly be morally good. It can't live up to God's commands. And the life of the soul of an animal is near nowhere near as precious as a human life. The lamb, no animal could atone for the sins of all humanity. No one like us would need to do that. But that one would need to be innocent, perfect himself. And that one would need to step in as our substitute and step in as a substitute for the guilty. This is what Jesus has done. This is what his death means. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it. He sa- it says this, that he, God, made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of Jesus' righteousness, Because the righteous one paid my penalty, I can be made righteous by accepting in faith what he's done. And when that happens, Jesus' right standing with the Father is actually given to me. I can stand before God no longer guilty, but justified. The weight of guilt and shame that I carry, the burden of striving for moral perfection is gone. You see, we cannot legally, we cannot morally earn our way back to God. It's impossible. And the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to anymore. I simply trust and accept what Jesus has purchased for me and get to live in his righteousness. It's a legal problem. Now, though there is a moral legal element to it, sin goes even deeper than that. Breaking breaking God's command is actually a symptom of a a deeper spiritual disease. So what is sin? Thirdly, it's a health problem. It's a metaphorical health problem. You see, sin isn't only action against God, but it's also a force within us leading us towards rebellion. In this way, sin is like a spiritual disease in that it has invaded the human soul that was not designed to house it. The human heart, no, the human heart was created for worship of God as Lord. And so sin is an unwanted guest that attacks the healthy heart and mind, distorting God's truth and leading us away from life with him. Now, physically speaking, literally speaking, if left untreated, an infection will overtake your healthy cells or your immune system will crash trying to fight it off. Either way, an infection left on its own will only cause pain and suffering. Now, Paul, the apostle Paul demonstrates this struggle in a really relatable passage, I, I think, in Romans chapter 7. It's almost like we're seeing an entry from a, a journal of Paul as he wrestles with this struggle. He recognizes this spiritual disease within him called sin. Listen to Romans seven nineteen to 20. Paul says, for I do not do the good that I want to do. But instead, I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I'm no longer the one who does it, but sin that lives in me. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, just like a sickness can limit our bodies from fully functioning, so too sin is a force that tries to limit our hearts, souls, and minds from truly living as God intended, worshiping him. We need a cure from this disease. Listen to Isaiah 53. Isaiah was a prophet, a messenger of God, came well before Jesus came to earth, but he was speaking ahead of what the Savior would do. And speaking of Jesus, he says this in Isaiah 53, 4-5. to five. Yet he himself, Jesus, bore our sicknesses, and he carried our sins carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. Now, how exactly did Jesus's death open the way for our healing? Well, for that, we'll turn to the final paradigm of sin. That is, it's a spiritual problem, spiritual problem. To put it another way, we we need to be released from the grip of sin over our lives. And often in scripture, this is specifically referred to, or a a good example is the, the grip of idolatry. Idolatry is false worship. Where we take that which has been created and may even be very good in its context but we elevate it to a place of honor and worship that only creator God deserves. Sin is our failure to worship God as God. And when we're gripped by sin, when we're gripped by this pull to idolatry, what we do is we give power over to those false gods that we do worship. Again, things that might be good in their own context, but are now unleashed with a new kind of power. Ambition, money, sex, those things can then take control over us humans, control that we were supposed to have and use for God's glory. To put it another way, we can often find ourselves enslaved to the things that we worship, trying to get life or purpose or freedom from that which cannot uphold the promise of salvation. We find ourselves continually serving them rather than using them to serve God's glory. And the Bible says that behind that force of our rebellion is a spiritual enemy. Scripture refers to as Satan. He wants nothing more than for those who were created, you and I, to bear God's image. To instead give that power over to other forces to then entrap us, enslave us, ensnare us, take us further away from God. And so in this way, Jesus's death would need to be a victory over that enemy. Jesus's death would need to be a victory over those powers. And that's exactly what it was. He would need to release us from the grip of sin. And that's what he's done. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians two, thirteen to 15. He says, and when you were dead in your sin trespass and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with him and forgave us all our sin. He erased the certificate of death of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Jesus. You see, what Jesus did at the cross is he willingly gave himself into the hands of the wicked, evil powers in creation. And he allowed them to carry out the full extent of the curse of sin. That is to unleash all of its force onto him to the point of death. That's its main goal. You see, what looked like defeat of Jesus at the cross was actually a defeat of the power of evil rather than try to outmuscle evil rather than try to get revenge or retaliate or re- pay back evil with more evil. No, Jesus sacrificed himself to it and the power of evil turned out to be no match for sacrificial love because Jesus let it defeat him. And when he did, he disarmed the leverage of fear, the threat of death that was over us because three days later, He rose from the dead and he conquered the only glimmer of power that sin had left. He released the grip of sin on us. It no longer needs to have a hold over our lives. You see, the sacrificial love of Jesus has rescued us from that lingering power of evil and the force that's within uh, within us. The good news is we have a new master, a new Lord, and his name is Jesus and he is good. You see, the death of Jesus, though it looked like defeat, it was actually God's ultimate moment of glory. Can you see how the cross shows us the heart of God? He's not just an unjust judge or a wicked tyrant. No, the cross is the ultimate expression of God's love, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, all being poured out in one moment in the person of Jesus. To reconcile you and I back to him. To pardon our debt. To heal our disease. And to rescue us from the grip of sin. Church, that is why Jesus died. In a minute, Robin and I are going to wrap things up with a few comments on, so what? What do we do now? We'll be back in just a minute. All right, Robin, we're back. We're back. In a new place. We're in a new place. Um, so we want to land this on yeah. what now? Yeah. What do we do? Like, what can we, what does this mean, I guess, for us? Uh, I'll, I'll let you start. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think for, for, for my part, Alex, that the most important so what is that Jesus really lived.
1: Yeah. Starts there, right?
0: <laughs> like, he was a real person that really walked. Jesus really did die. And he didn't just die, but he really planned and chose mm-hmm. to die to mm-hmm. give his life. Mm-hmm. And that the basis of our faith is rooted in the historicity or the historical nature of, of that. And that because Jesus really lived, and because Jesus really died, and because Jesus chose to die,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you and I then, and hopefully all of you who are watching, are compelled to ask the question, why and how does that change my life? Yeah. The historical nature of Jesus compels us to ask why? What does this mean to me? Mm-hmm. We can't just be like, oh, that's an interesting historical story. Like it goes deeper than that. And uh and I think that's really where where your your thoughts I think really connect into that. So for you like what do you, what do you think the so what is?
1: Yeah, for me, I mean in addition to that, and we're going to continue to unpack it. <clears throat> for me, kind of leads me to ask the question, for all of us to ask the question, what does the cross tell us about who God is? Yeah. Um, can we trust him? Can we trust his heart and mm-hmm. his character? And kind of what I see in, in Jesus at the cross is that God has revealed ultimately, without a shadow of a doubt, that he's for us. That he's for us. That yeah. he unleashed this new kind of power into the world, this power of sacrificial love. Mm. And so when we ask what God's like, can we trust him? We look at the cross and we say, "There's, there's no greater expression of true love, which is to really empty yourself mm. completely uh, for the for the betterment. In this case, for the life of another." Yeah. And so, I look at the cross and I say, "When we ask that, like, do we trust that? Do we see God's heart in that? Um, His sacrificial love is for us. It makes us new. It forgives us and allows us to be fully human." Yeah. Uh, and so, that's kind of the question I'm, I'm left with is is uh, can we trust God's heart? Can we trust his character?
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think the, the that's so brilliant, this fact that Jesus reveals God historically, like there's Jesus culminates who God is historically, but then that compels us to then go and see that God is for us. Yeah. Like he wants relationship with us. He wants relationship with you. Absolutely. And over the next uh, number of days, we're going to dive a lot deeper into what that looks like. We're going to look at resurrection. We're going to look at the response of the early church. We're going to look at how all of this was planned uh, through the whole story over thousands and thousands of years in the story of the the scriptures. And so we're just really starting to unpack things. And I hope for wherever you are, wherever you're at, whether you know Jesus, whether you're just asking questions, that you see that the evidence for Jesus' life can give us a confidence that he's real, that he really did live, he really did die. Mm but that there was a reason for it, and that reason is to know God and walk in relationship with Him. So as you ponder those thoughts, we're going to go into uh, a song of reflection or worship, and uh, after that, Brooke is going to wrap up with some instructions for tonight. There will be some Q&A uh, on uh, some links that have been posted afterwards, uh, but we look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Alex and I going to continue the discussion. I invite you to reflect with
1: us for the next moments together.